because what you don't know about energy can kill you. Here's Alex Epstein. Welcome to Power Hour. I'm Alex Epstein. Those of you watching on YouTube this week will notice something different, namely that you cannot see me. If you like seeing me, then don't worry, it's not a permanent change. I'm just moving home offices this week, and I don't have a really good aesthetic location to record, So, but I can still do, I think, a good job on audio. For those of you listening on podcasts, this should make zero difference at all. So today I want to cover one big subject, and I'm titling this episode, The Power Liars, How Google, Microsoft, and Amazon Pretend to Be 100% Renewable. So The Power Liars, How Google, Microsoft, and Amazon Pretend to Be 100% Renewable. And the genesis of this, I mean, I've, I've talked about this subject, particularly with Apple in the past, and talked about what I call their energy accounting fraud. And it's a similar thing for, for these companies. But the reason I'm focusing on these companies is that in the energy world, there was a big story this week, which is that uh, Google, or maybe it was last week, but Google is refusing to build custom artificial intelligence slash machine learning for oil and gas projects, particularly oil and gas, what are called upstream projects, so exploration and production. And one of the, the spokesperson for Google said, we will not, and then there were some words, and then, uh, which were you know, dot, 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 build custom AI slash ML, artificial intelligence slash machine learning algorithms to facilitate upstream extraction in the oil and gas uh, industry. And the impetus for this announcement was a new Greenpeace report entitled Oil in the Cloud, How Tech Companies Are Helping Big Oil Profit from Climate Destruction. And the report is 40 pages, but I can... I can uh, save you a lot of time because it's really pretty uh, simple. It's actually, I find that with a lot of these reports, either there's just huge distortions or they're belaboring a really simple point. And in this case, I think it's mostly belaboring a really simple point. So here's the narrative of the report. They're saying basically um, Google, Microsoft, Amazon are doing a good thing by becoming 100% renewable themselves or at least you know, making commitments to do that very soon, but they're undercutting that by helping oil and gas companies become more efficient. And the whole thing is really just focused on, here's how by producing these algorithms, they're helping oil and gas companies produce oil and gas at lower costs, which therefore makes it, uh, all things being equal, more likely that people will buy more of it. And that's really simple. And I'm sure it's true. And if it wasn't true, it would mean they were selling a bad product and eventually probably no one would buy it. So it's pretty yeah, it's pretty straightforward in terms of the facts of it. But the real question is, is this narrative right? Is it true that, oh, well, they're doing a good thing by becoming 100% renewable themselves, but they're undercutting that by helping oil and gas companies become more uh, efficient? And my view is the exact opposite. So I think of it as Google, Microsoft, and Amazon, they're doing a good thing by using digital technologies to help oil and gas companies become more efficient, but they're undercutting this with what I consider dishonest and cowardly claims that they are anywhere near 100% renewable. And that's why I want to focus on this issue of 100% renewable today. I want to expose that these companies are nowhere near 100% renewable. There's no evidence that they can become anything like this in the coming decades. And it is incredibly destructive for them to say so. Why, why do I think it's so destructive? Well, 
because we can only make good decisions about fossil fuels and more broadly energy going forward if we have an, an accurate assessment of the benefits of fossil fuels and the side effects. And to really understand the benefits of fossil fuels going forward, we need to know the state of the alternatives. If it, if it were really true that it's super easy to become 100% renewable or even that it's it's doable with a little bit of extra effort, that would change the benefit calculation. It would mean that the benefits of fossil fuels mostly weren't unique benefits and they could be replaced by something else. But if it's true that other approaches, particularly renewable approaches, are nowhere near uh, able to do what fossil fuels can do, well, then that needs to be known too. And my, my contention is that these companies, by totally misrepresenting their energy use and their energy plans, they're teaching the world a very false lesson about what energy technologies are viable. And that's a lesson that's already, I think, influencing policy in a, in a very negative uh, direction. You can see if you look at polling, not that you look at this kind of polling, but I, I, I do as an occupational thing, 100% renewable, that as a term just polls incredibly well. And I think that if these companies had were not being so irresponsible, then there would not be that kind of um, there would not be that kind of public opinion because when people hear Apple does this, Google does this, Microsoft does this, Amazon does this, they think, yeah, well, these are the leading companies. So if they're doing it, it must be efficient, it must be profitable, it must be even possible, and therefore we can all do it. So we're going to see today that is not the case at all. And so the what I want to spend basically the rest of the show doing is doing a deep dive into these claims of 100% renewable and in particular looking at what each of the companies is claiming and then looking at the reality. And to do that, I am bringing in my longtime researcher, Stefan Henna, who recently put out the video on our YouTube channel, which is youtube.com slash improve the planet. And his video is called How Bad Are Solar and Wind? And it's been pretty popular. I've heard a bunch of good feedback uh, on it. And so I think he, that's a really interesting deep dive into some of the claims about solar and wind. And so Stefan is my go-to person when it comes to really understanding the details of how energy works and how it doesn't. So I thought I would bring him on today. So uh, Stefan, welcome back to Power Hour. Hi, Alex. Hey, and I forgot to mention, you, you, long-time listeners know Stefan, uh, is in Germany, so he is uh, he is skipping party time to uh, to be with us since I'm recording this right. midday on on uh, on uh, Wednesday. So, uh, Stefan, first let me ask: How has the reception been to your video? Have you gotten any interesting feedback on it? Uh, so, the feedback that I got on social media was pretty good. There were some discussions of uh, people I know. Um, uh, some negative feedback by people who are not uh who cannot be swayed i would say but generally it was very positive and if you were to take one point in that video that you think might be new to the audience and might motivate them to watch that video in particular what do you think it is um i would say uh the popular view that solar and wind are really cheap uh in practice is not true that's a very condensed version of it. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it's interesting how you you illustrate, I think, in a lot of detail, the point that I, I think is really important, which is that every form of energy production is a process, and you have to look at the full cost uh, of the process. And if it's a parasitical or dependent process, then you have to look at the processes that it's a parasite on or dependent on. And so let's, let's now jump into 
the 100% renewable claims. And, and I think the best way to do this is to look at a high level at what are kind of the common claims that everyone is making and what's wrong with them. And then we'll look at the specific uh, companies. So first of all, what are these companies claiming about their energy use? If we're talking about, and you know, picking on, the, I should say the reason why I'm focusing in this episode on Google, Microsoft, and Amazon is just that they are the three acknowledged leaders in AI slash machine learning for the oil and gas industry. And so each of them had a response to this Greenpeace report. I think the responses of Microsoft and Amazon uh, were much better than Google's response. But I think all of them are fundamentally uh, being dishonest about their own energy use and, and in promoting this 100% renewable idea. So yeah, let me ask again, what, what are these companies claiming about their energy use? So, you know, in very general terms, they are essentially pretending that they are um, already either on the road or already accomplished a 100% uh, energy supply of all the operations with renewables. So the, the general goal is to be carbon neutral in very short term. And they are saying, hey, we are tech leaders. We have a lot of energy consumption and we can energize our operations with 100% renewable energy and thereby we have no CO2 emissions and uh, we can save the climate and the planet. Um, and we're really examples of that. So everyone else can uh, copy that strategy that we use. And I think it's important that we're, we're talking about 100% renewable, we're talking about either primarily or exclusively solar and wind. That's that's the dominant understood meaning of 100% renewable. And as we've talked about many times, there's a lot of ambiguity to the term renewable, including because often the renewable movement is against hydro, particularly large-scale hydro, which is uh, by far the most scalable and reliable form of what you could call renewable energy, if you use that term, which I, which I don't like using that term. So when they're definitely the vision that people have is solar panels, uh, wind turbines, powering everything involved. And so, okay, so let's ask, like, okay, broadly speaking, what's what's the reality of energy today in terms of 100% renewable? Yeah, so these companies uh, obviously have global operations and all of their data centers, uh, retail stores, uh, um, administrative uh headquarters and so on, they are all embedded in the general uh, energy systems of various countries around the world. And so when we look at the overall statistics, uh, we see that the entire global energy system is supplied by 80% plus from fossil fuels and only about 3 to 4% from solar and wind specifically. And even if we look at growth trajectories, uh, recognizing that solar and wind have only recently uh, been growing. Yeah, solar and wind are growing at large percentages compared to what they were before. But this is, you know, if you if you increase a small amount by doubling it, you still have a small amount. So in absolute terms, uh, solar and wind are not even at uh, replacement rates compared to fossil fuels. So fossil fuels are growing faster in absolute energy units than solar and wind so far. So in other words, uh, these global operation companies uh, both from the perspective of their production side, their services uh, being rendered to their customers, and also their customers using the infrastructure like the internet 
they are all using and crucially depending on fossil fuels mostly. So, I mean, people might think, well, isn't it, maybe it's just that they've, okay, maybe the global energy system has these uh, averages and you said, well, they're integrated, it's an integrated, but it can it just be that, well, maybe Apple is, or, you know, well, let's take Google because they say we're already hundred percent renewable, uh, that or maybe it's not, maybe they're, they use that in carbon neutral, but they're definitely like, they say that they're, they've already, uh, achieved the goal. So it, can it just be, well, maybe they have their own cloistered data center that's powered just by renewable electricity. And then they have their own, but then, then you start to, well, we'll get to the others in a second, but it starts to become questionable. And you think, wait, are all, do they have their special renewable mining machines for all the physical materials that are needed for their products and et cetera, et cetera. But let's just talk about the electricity part of it. Is, is it that they have their own 100% renewable like electricity fiefdom uh yeah so they definitely try to pretend that and we'll get into the fallacies later but uh so i only know of one place on the globe where this uh, claim would be possible and that is iceland where three quarters of the electricity come from hydro and the rest almost exclusively from geothermal and so iceland had 300,000 uh, inhabitants or 400,000 inhabitants and has a lot of hydro and geothermal potential at very low cost. Uh, but that's like, if you run anything outside of that, and most of the operations are outside of Iceland, uh, that's not actually possible. Yeah, and it's, it's worth noting that both hydro and, ge and geothermal are very location specific and location dependent. It's not that they can be used cost effectively everywhere uh, in the world. So, okay. So we have, the, and then just talk for a second about the other parts of these companies' operations that are using, you know, transportation, uh, industrial heat, residential heat, because I think often energy use is equated with electricity use. So speak to that. Yeah. So these companies in their self-analysis of CO2 emissions specifically, they use different scopes. So you might think of uh, scope one uh, level, that is what CO2 emissions do we emit, emit directly? Like if we are running a building, we might have a, have a gas heating system that emits CO2 and specific operations. Uh, if we are building hardware or something, these industrial processes might have uh, operation, uh, might have CO2 emissions directly. And then there's a scope two, this is indirect. Uh, if I uh, get supplied by a utility for my electricity, then this electricity will have a certain uh, CO2 intensity. So if they are burning coal or gas or something like that, they will have an indirect CO2 emissions. And then there's a broader perspective, the entire supply chains and uh, the environment that their customers are using their tools in and so on. All of these uh, different scopes of the operation have various CO2 emissions. And, uh, you know, we're, we are talking about uh, Amazon later on that definitely has a bunch of diesel trucks for delivery. So transportation obviously is a huge thing in the supply chains in case of Amazon, also in the in the core product uh, of the company. And, and these are all CO2 emission intensive and they are actually much harder to tackle in terms of CO2 reduction compared to electricity. But electricity is already uh, a big challenge. Yeah, so I think if, if we just think about, okay, Amazon says, I mean, Bezos, I, I mean, I generally love Jeff Bezos, so it's really sad to 
have to criticize him. But in his shareholder letter, they call it their share owner letter, in 2019, he talks about, you know, we have an aggressive plan where we might hit 100% renewable by 2025. And you just think about like, what is going on with Amazon in terms of they have, they're, like, they're basically an airline now. They have all these planes and those planes are using jet fuel that's derived from oil. And then they're using all these different, you know, trucks of different kinds of sizes. And I mean, you know, let alone, I mean, then you can also ask like, let alone, what about all the products they sell? Are those going to be hundred percent renewable? But if you even look at in terms of their production, but you just look at that, you think there's something, there's something really off here. And we'll talk about how they're kind of claiming that, that they're still going to be hundred percent renewable, but that should be really off. And then I just want to talk a little bit more about the grid because just, we talked about this by implication, but it's, it's really important that the basic state the basic requirement of a grid is it's producing reliable electricity. That's what we demand. And by the nature of it, like electricity needs to be this continuous supply. And then solar and wind do not give you continuous anything. They give you highly intermittent inputs. And so you need to turn intermittent input into reliable output. And so how do you do that? I mean, your kind of theoretical options are if you want it to be self-sufficient, you could like totally over, you could build it uh, build so many solar panels and wind turbines so that sometimes you'd have way more than you need and sometimes you'd have way less than you need and then but it would sort of average out to what you need but then you'd need an incredible amount of batteries to store it for even the worst case scenarios and as we've discussed on this show this is just completely not cost effective and that's why nobody in the world does it or is even proposing to do it so really the practical way you deal with an intermittent input if you insist on using it is you want a reliable fuel. And so that usually means coal, gas, not oil, just because it's mostly used for transportation, but it, it could do the job of reliable electricity. And then, you know, nuclear fuel or hydro, or in very rare cases, uh, geothermal, where you can where you can do it. And so what's going on with the grids is the grids are overwhelmingly reliable fueled. That's true of every grid. It's just that's that's the way it works. It's reliable fueled. And all of these companies are drawing from the grid. So they are all on the grid. And even if they could deliberately choose just electrons from that are somehow generated from solar and wind, which they can't even do by the nature of the grid, like even if they could do that, it would still depend on the others. So it would they, they would still be parasitical on the others and they couldn't legitimately claim, oh, we're 100% um, renewable. So the, the basic situation is they are... You know what they're doing with is they are drawing power from the reliable grid, and they are claiming credit. They are claiming that they are only using the unreliable input, and so that just does not make any sense. Anything to add to that, Stefan? Now, there's also one one point I want to make is that these companies are actually. Um, sometimes doing something like oh there's a lot of hydroelectricity on our local grid and we'll buy that as renewable so there's an overlap in renewable um uh, in the renewable category that is not totally solar and wind but it's when you look at the details of what they are claiming uh, you know in the sustainability reports they will consistently point to hey we build this solar park or this wind farm or financed this project of solar and wind, and um, it, it's 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 true that there are some 
sort of reliable um, renewables on a local grid, but it's uh, generally in the in the entire like global power supply. Only solar and wind are really uh, the the sources of energy that grow in significant capacity numbers. So it's it's uh, you could make an argument and evade the issue by saying, well, look, we have this one example in Washington State, for example, where there's a lot of hydro, but it's really evading the issue when you look at the entire global operations of these companies. Yeah, and this this may come up with other things, but that I mean. Does it even make sense to so if you already have a hydroelectric power plant and your company comes into existence, so it already exists, it's already producing a certain amount uh, of electricity, and there's not any effort to build more of it, and then you just if you somehow get credit for that, I mean, how much sense does that make? What did you actually accomplish? You just you just change the balance of credit and blame by these standards. But what they're trying to argue is no, we are in some way creating. Like we are creating this 100% renewable capacity, which is a, a weaselly term, uh, but you know, the, used in the kind of in the legitimate sense of the term, as in we we are creating this ability. You know, we're using solar panels and wind turbines, and we're we're adding this new uh, ability, and we're just existing off that. I think that's definitely the way that it's portrayed. So then let's let's jump into um, what are the you know, I would call gimmicks or worse, but what what are the mechanisms that companies use given that they're not actually, in fact, they're not actually 100% powered by renewables, not even close. So their transportation, their electricity, none of it is actually 100% powered by renewables. If you if you trace what's actually happening, it doesn't remotely resemble that. So how can they, and they have no plans for it too. So how are, what, what tricks are they using to say that it's 100% renewable? Well, the recurring uh, methods they use to claim that they are 100% renewables or 100% um, uh, net neutral on, on CO2 is uh, three components, essentially. And, and most of them use all three uh, to some degree. And the first one is that they will build either on-site or remote solar or wind capacity. So... If you think of Apple, uh, for example, they uh, have built solar panels next to their data centers and uh, then they send the electricity from the solar panels into the power grid and get reliable power from the grid. So essentially they are investing, but, but some companies do this uh, in a remote thing. I think IKEA is very is king in that, uh, you know, just sponsoring some wind farm on the other side of the world and then, then claiming credit for that for their operations. And so what this essentially does is they will they will finance some solar or wind farm somewhere or even building it on their own rooftops. And then they are exporting the unreliability problem of uh, solar and wind uh, by just using the grid power and just exporting like the solar power on site or the, or the wind farm power into the general grid. So essentially what someone with a house would do, you know, putting some rooftop solar on their roofs and then um, just selling the kilowatt hours produced there and just using the reliable power uh, to power their home uh, appliances. So it's, I just want to stress before you get to the next one. So this is not a, a scalable uh, thing. It's just saying, I mean, it's just saying you're not solving the problem 
of these being niche sources. And often, you know, you're, you can be creating problems because you're adding more unreliability to the grid, uh, depending on who's paying for it. You know, you're adding more, usually you're adding more total cost to the grid. Now there is an issue with these companies of, in some cases, maybe they're paying you know, they're paying for it because they have very, very high profit margins. So they can afford to pay more for electricity. So there's a question of, are they driving up people's rates? But they're driving up the cost of producing electricity because we see on every grid that it tries to incorporate what I call these unreliables. Their overall costs go up because you have to pay for the reliable energy infrastructure. And then you also have to pay for the unreliable uh, energy infrastructure. So they're not solving anything. They're, they're not solving the reliability problem. They're adding cost and... So it's 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 not at all that they're building self-sufficient things. They're building something that is very limited in how much uh, it can scale. So uh, what's the next one? Oh, just one thing to add there. I just want to state that uh, this option is actually, uh, from all the three options, is actually the strongest because they are actually, by their investment, they have the potential to uh, marginally increase the amount of solar and wind on that particular grid. Now, there's a question with these complex uh, um, utility contracts they will, they will invest into, uh, whether that, this wouldn't have happened anyway, because utilities typically are driven by some uh, legislature to increase their amount of renewables by some date. So, um, it's it's complicated, but this is this is a massive shortfall in not using one hundred percent renewable. But it's actually of the three options, I think it's the strongest policy that they come up with. It's still a massive shortfall. Okay, what's the second one? The second one is uh, green renewable credits, and uh, this means that they are not really using solar and wind, but they are essentially paying someone else to gain the ownership of their share of solar and wind on the power grid. So. Uh, this is typically done by a power purchasing contract. So they will make a contract with a local utility and say, hey, you deliver us only from this wind farm or only from this from wind and solar capacity that you are using. You have an entire grid of various things, natural gas, hydroelectric power, whatever, but we only want the electrons from solar and wind. And technically this doesn't work, but on the paper you can the utility can account for that. They can say, oh yeah, this entire thing that was produced by Solon Wind, this goes to the data center of Google. And uh, so the private households on our grid will just receive a higher uh, level of, of natural gas and, and coal on the paper and the accounting. Yeah, so I mean, you think about this, there's the term of virtue signaling. I mean, this is a, this is a very, this is kind of virtue purchasing because you're just saying, that, okay, again, there's a grid, the unreliables are a relatively small percentage of it. And you're just saying, I want, and everybody shares it and has to share it. You're saying like, I want credit for the unreliables or the renewables, and I want everyone else to take disproportionate blame for the reliable sources. So you see this over and over and over. It's just completely unjust. And the, the analogy I've been using for years here, because I, I find it funny and, and memorable, is I just think of, I used it with Apple. So I think of, you know, Tim Cook says, I want to get across the ocean quickly. Like I, you know, I want to, I want to, you know, I want our, um, you know, I want to, I want to go across the ocean uh, quickly in an ocean liner. And, but I can't because it's, you know, it's powered by uh, diesel or some other, you know, maybe some other heavier oil, uh, oil fuel. And Al Gore says, oh, no problem. What I'll do is I'll just attach a sail 
to the top of it. And so sometimes the wind will blow and maybe it'll be 10% of the energy used, maybe less. But then I will just, I will just get everyone on the, I will pay everyone else on the boat off to say that you were brought across by the sail and they were brought across by the diesel. And that, that would make no sense. Obviously he's overwhelmingly being brought across by the diesel, by uh, the oil field. So this is just, it's really, a I mean, I consider it a fraudulent thing in terms of what's being claimed to consumers. Con consumers definitely think when they say we're 100% renewable that, oh, we are actually being powered by this in reality. Not that we used our um, profit margins. We use some of our profit margins to pay for the status of 100% renewable. We, we paid basically to take credit for other people's fraction of renewable uh, electricity. So I understand why you say that that the first option of actually building the production is is better than this, although it's it's not really good in the end and it's it's not making them at all 100% renewable, but here it's just a pure credit grab. Uh what's the what's the third one? Yeah, so the final one um that is very common is uh using carbon offsets and this is a relatively large area of things to do that have to do with CO2 emission uh, mathematics. And so, for example, you could say, well, I have to run, uh, you know, my business on a, on a reliable natural gas or, or coal uh, power grid, or I, I have to use diesel trucks because there's no other uh, viable option for me. But I can uh, make good on that by just planting a large amount of trees, uh, which are considered carbon sinks. They breathe CO2 in and grow and bind down this atmospheric CO2. So you can have, uh, you know, by your increase, you can subtract from the atmosphere CO2 on that by doing some other stuff. And so this is a very broad category, but something like planting trees or, or something similar is, uh, typically com uh, uh, considered a carbon offset so you can you can still uh, emit uh, things uh, with your processes and you know this acknowledges that your your processes are not actually uh, carbon neutral and they cannot be um, but you can make good by uh, making someone else do something that sequesters co2 essentially so what's wrong with this well the problem is that this is not uh, there are several problems. The, the biggest problem, I think, is that this is not, again, really scalable because there are only so many trees that you can plant and so many uh, like uh, uh, marshlands you can protect and so on. And, and so this is uh, really just getting you so far. If you cannot uh, change the, the process in a way that it actually saves uh, CO2 and stops emitting CO2, like, for example, cement production, if you can't do that cheaply without CO2 emissions, then at some point, we still have to produce cement. And if, if we don't innovate in this, we are just exporting the problem uh, until this everything is plastered with, with trees, and then what? Right? We, we still have to continue our process, and, and we still have to go to net emissions. And if everyone would buy into these uh, projects, uh, there wouldn't be uh, uh, there wouldn't be enough land mass to build all the uh, to plant all these trees on. And so this is this is not scalable. And there's also a question about the enforcement of this. Is this actually is a math correct? Um, um, does planting so and so many trees really uh, 
do bind down the CO2 or net over long periods of time. And um, wouldn't these projects happen without the, the payment by these tech companies? Yeah, so there, there are a lot of questions about just the honesty of any given kind of offset claim, like the the tree planting. I think they just tend to, they, they, there's, a, there's a, just a huge amount of room for fraud. But I think the basic point is just that this is not scalable. And if it, if it was scalable, then we should just do this. Like if you can actually cheaply offset the CO2 that you emit, and that's that's straightforward to do, then everyone should just do that. I mean, and, and, you know, if there's really a fear of climate catastrophe, but why change the whole energy system and force everyone to use this unreliable energy? Like, just offset everything. And so what's what's going on is, at best, there are, lo- you can think of it as low-hanging fruit with offset. So there are places to prevent, uh, to plant trees, rather, where you can actually do that cheaply, and it'll actually absorb a significant amount of CO2. But there aren't these these uh, opportunities to capture CO2 that are low cost on a scale of hundreds of millions, let alone billions of people. So it's, it's again, a situation where the companies can say, oh, well, we're virtuous by doing this thing, but it's not something that other people can do. And so if you're acting like, oh, we're a model for others, you're not. And in fact, in effect, you're taking away, you could say, well, you're taking away other people's cheapest offset opportunities. So if there's some poor person who wants to offset their CO2, well, you're, you're going to make it harder for them. The trees one, I know this has been adopted as as some panacea because there's this what, trillion tree, trillion tree something. I thought it had three T's in it. But this, I mean, you just think about what, like, who did the math on this? But also, there are reasons why there aren't trees everywhere. We might not want a trillion trees. And for example, I was thinking of this in particular during the Australian wildfires, where one of the issues is, in a sense, they're not clearing uh, enough. So certain places you don't want so many trees, or you want to get rid of trees, you know, dead trees earlier. And so if if you're focused on optimizing, if you're focused on optimizing for number of trees, that could have all sorts of hazards, including increased fires. And I remember that when the fires were burning, there were a bunch of people saying, "Oh man, now our offset calculations have gone to hell." And that makes sense. Like if, if the trees are now burning, then the whole the whole idea of oh these would store CO two for X amount of time that totally uh, that totally falls through. So with all of these, none of them, you know, you know, I think what they they have in common is none of them are actually none of them are actually getting their reliable energy uh, anywhere near close to one hundred percent. You know even a significant percentage of it, I would say, from these unreliable uh, inputs. And so they're doing dishonest things or in the case of, of and it's dishonest in one way uh, or another. And none of these, none of these offer like a scale, a scalable way to get your energy from these sources. So that's, that's the problem, you know, by their own, if, if that's, if that's what they're trying to do, that's what they're claiming to do. That's what they are not um, solving. So let's let's go. So with that context, I wanted to go through the common errors because I wanted to see. So we have on-site, you know, we have on-site building of projects of solar and wind projects. We have these green credits, and then we have carbon offsets. We'll see that these are in common among uh, all of them. So let's let's go. We can go. I think pretty quickly now. But let's let's start with uh, Google. So tell me about Google's claims, and then how they're using these methods to. Uh, "Quote unquote," substantiate them. Yeah, so Google Google was a real pioneer in this. Uh, they claim to be carbon neutral since two thousand and seven already, 
and they are 100% renewable uh, since 2017. So they are putting into their sustainability reports like, oh, in the, in the second or third year in a row, we are 100% renewable energy. And so the methods they use is a mix of all, all the three uh, ways that we discussed. And uh, so they are claiming, or they are saying that they invested $2.5 billion in renewable energy projects with a total combined capacity of 3.7 gigawatts. And so you can see here, they are uh, investing in solar and wind farm. And then the question of course is, hey, wouldn't these solar and wind farms have happened anyways? Or even if you're doing that, why aren't you using them yourselves uh, on the on site, right? And then yeah, the, you're not you're not you're not using yeah you're not getting your energy from those projects. You've just added some more unreliable energy right. to the grid. So they might use incremental amounts of that, uh, and they are uh, by the way they are using these gigawatt capacity numbers, and this does totally doesn't tell you with solar and wind. Like it totally depends on where they stand, like what percentage of that actually produces on average. Um, and then they use also green credits. So they, they in, in the official sustainability papers, I put something like Google's total purchase of energy from sources like wind and solar matched the amount of electricity used by our operations around the world. So you see the focus on wind and solar here. This is their focus. They are buying that, but they are just buying an average statistic of wind and solar energy. And then they claim oh, look, we, we just powered our entire global operations, even where there is no solar and wind. Uh, I think Taiwan is an example where there's a lot of coal, coal and natural gas on the power grid. And, and they are claiming, yeah, everything is solar and wind now. And, and this is mostly facilitated by uh, power purchase agreements, as we discussed before. And they also use uh, carbon offsets. So, um, and they claim that when they purchase carbon offsets, they follow stringent principles because they acknowledge that there has been a lot of bad stuff going on with this kind of uh, carbon offset dealing where, where you know, people will just claim, oh yeah, we will plant a bunch of trees and then nothing happens. So on that, uh, uh, no CO2 is actually sequestered, but, but they use carbon offset projects as well. So th this is how they actually achieve carbon neutrality uh, since 2007 was all three of these aspects. Well, I mean, I wouldn't use the word achieve. I, and I would say this yeah. is how they, how they, from how from they plan. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, and you know, Google, reading through their stuff, they're, I think, the most honest of the companies, which I don't think they're being honest, uh, particularly in how they're summarizing it. But if you dig deep into their stuff, they actually, they'll at least explain these kinds of issues. And there's been slightly more explanation of these issues in general, but the the headline idea of, yeah, we're 100% carbon neutral, as we're, we'll talk about with Microsoft in a second, carbon negative or heading toward that, it's all just the same uh, manipulation with, I think, the same bad consequences. All right. So what about Microsoft? Yeah. So uh, Microsoft also came, uh, claims to be carbon neutral every year since 2012. And they have committed to becoming carbon negative by 2030. And the idea is that they, like by some date around 2050, they will actually, um, through this negative carbon balance, they will actually have um, 
made good on all of the uh, Microsoft emissions since 1975. So the, the idea is that you can go better than 100% CO2 emission avoidance. You can even go negative and, um, you know, make good on your sins of the past in this sense. And so they also use uh, green credits. Uh, so they are stating that we've addressed these emissions through purchasing clean power equal to our global electricity consumption, and we are moving to 100% direct power purchases by 2025. So just as a quick explanation, these direct power purchases, this is a slightly different way of accounting the same thing. So uh, the, the, these direct power purchases are essentially saying, well, this wind farm on this power grid um, has a contract with us and they will supply 100% of the power to our data center, which is not true. This is still the same grid power, but th this is different than some of these utilities offering like uh, renewable energy programs, which is more vague um, in terms of like where the energy is supposed to come from. Um, but it's essentially the same. You're just taking green credits for um, getting getting grid power, essentially, and, and paying extra to, to pretend this is all from the wind farm, which is obviously impossible because your data center wouldn't work when the wind isn't blowing. Um, then they also use offsets. Um, so they say we will invest in carbon removal offsets to address residual emissions across our scope one, two, and three. We talked about scopes. And this is the seems to be the primary strategy to get into carbon negative territory. So they, you can obviously not emit less than zero tons of CO2, but by these uh, carbon offsets, they pretend that they can actually have a negative carbon impact, and then they will uh, long term be uh, making good on the emissions they have emitted in the past decades. And so. I have found vague uh, hints at them uh, doing direct investments in, in solar and wind projects, but this it's not clear. And l let me just add here, there's some problem with the vagueness, the different degrees of vagueness in these reports, because they, they will always like harp on, yeah, we, we are 100% uh, here and there, and uh, the data centers are all uh, uh, powered by that, or... Uh, our facilities have rooftop solar and so on, but they will not like give detailed information, uh, you know, exactly how this works. And so it's it's not always clear where all of the of the numbers are coming from. But that's part of the strategy. They they have to hide something essentially. All right. Now, one more thing that's just occurring to me about uh, the offsets. I mean, the main thing is so. I question all these calculations, but I mean, what, what's happening, as I mentioned, like there might be some low hanging fruit, but there's not a lot. And so then what you're doing ultimately is, and so it's possible that Microsoft could figure out some way to do this. I mean, to pay for the enough offsets, for, you know, to make itself negative, but it would just be an unbelievable amount of money. And it would be, I mean, what would be the point of it? It would just be to say, well, yes, if I'm incredibly, incredibly rich, I can afford to pay a huge amount for energy in terms of my own energy use. Now, you're not paying for all the, I mean, are you paying for all the energy that's being used to produce everything that you use? Is it like the energy that went into making your headquarters? So I have no idea. I I doubt that they're including all the energy and all the different uh, things, but 
it's not a solution to say, well, we can just make, we can just pay incredibly high prices for our energy use. And that makes us good. Like that doesn't, that's just showing off because you're, what you're doing is you're participating in policy discussions that are saying we need to make energy far more expensive for everybody in the world. So unless you acknowledge that, yeah, we're going to pay incredibly high prices that make no sense for anyone else to pay, even almost no other business has the profit margins to justify this. Like, yeah, if you did that, then that would be more honest, but it would show that, well, this is a bad, it's a bad goal to just say like, yeah, no matter what, we're going to be hundred percent renewable. And one thing, sorry, another thing I forgot to mention before we go to Amazon, but I think this will be relevant to Amazon is notice the focus on renewable as the goal. Now, sometimes they talk about carbon neutral, but, but specifically with renewable in terms of the power generation, there's, they're saying we're only going to use renewable, which means solar, wind, sometimes hydro, sometimes geothermal when it's available. But what about nuclear? Like nuclear is the reliable source uh, of electricity that can actually give you low carbon energy. And so, and that it doesn't have the same kind of dependence and parasitism. So where is that discussion? And why are these companies who are tech innovators, why are they participating in this ridiculous idea that you need to be renewable? And this is where I find Amazon particularly disappointed because Jeff Bezos is such a smart person. And in fact, his at least his dad had a long background in oil and gas and Bezos has spoken admiringly of that industry. And these guys know these, I mean, Bill Gates, for God's sake, is one of the world's biggest advocates of nuclear and yet Microsoft, and he's publicly explained why it doesn't make any sense to try to go hundred percent renewable. And yet Microsoft is still has this insistent insistence on renewable. And so it's really this religious term that's saying, oh, well, we need to somehow be getting energy naturally from the sun and the wind, and we can't extract anything from the earth. That would be bad. It's, it's, it's really, they're buying into this dogma. I would have much more respect for them. I mean, much, much more respect if they said, yeah, we're going to get our, elect- we're going to lead a movement of clean, cheap, safe nuclear energy. Imagine what kind of influence that would have on the world. But instead, they're just totally letting the green movement, which is an anti-nuclear movement, Greenpeace certainly is an anti-nuclear organization, they're letting them dictate this anti-nuclear and anti-fossil fuel effort to reduce CO2 emissions. So that's just, I, I mentioned that it was, I regarded it as dishonest and cowardly. I regard the nuclear part as as one of the primary cowardly elements because they're they're just totally kowtowing toward the wrong way in which this discussion is framed. And that wrong way of framing the discussion will lead to really, really bad policies, including anti-nuclear policies. Let's talk about uh, Amazon. So Stefan, tell us about Amazon. So Amazon is uh, has goals. It, it doesn't say it has achieved already uh, neutrality, but uh it aims at 100% renewable energy by 2030 and 50% ship, shipment net zero carbon by 2030. So shipment net zero carbon, what they mean is that from their warehouse to the doorstep delivery, this process is supposed to be zero CO2 emissions. Um, and they also recently had this climate uh, pledge uh, where they say they want to reach the Paris climate goals 10 years early, which means net zero by 2040. 
And as, so a, the- as a company, I mean, Paris, Steve Malloy pointed this out in the Wall Street Journal. Uh, well, I mean, I don't know what that means. Those are, those are goals for countries. So what does it mean to reach the Paris climate goals? I think the, the, the Paris framework in general allowed like for smaller units like municipalities and states and also companies to join this kind of, of effort. And But what they are generally aligning with is just, oh yeah, we, need, we want to be a net zero by 2050 um, in order to achieve this uh, below two degree of warming and making efforts to reach below 1.5 degrees C of warming by end of century. And, and so what uh, this climate pledge just means that, oh, we want to do this net zero thing, but 10 years earlier than the Paris Accord would call for. By, and by 2050. So, so there's a complex math of emissions and what this means in terms of warming, but th- this is just their alignment with that. Um, and they are also using direct solar and wind investments, uh, including on-site claims. So they are saying, well, our delivery um, uh, base here has solar rooftop, uh, which is a typical fallacy. They are obviously not running on, on solar rooftop energy themselves because then you wouldn't get quick delivery next day. Um, and they also uh, recently, they have initiated this $100 million fund in uh, carbon offsets in the form of forest restoration and other projects. And so just note that this, this $100 million for this global operation, I don't think this is really a lot. But Amazon also has a different challenge because Amazon is this uh, delivery company uh, and it has a lot of diesel trucks on the roads. Uh, and so they have bought this company called Rivian, which is uh, building electric they, they've vehicles. Bought, they've actually bought the company? I think they've bought it. But they, they, they let them build 100,000 electric vehicles uh, to replace their diesel trucks. Um, and, and this is quite ambitious. Uh, I know personally uh, from the experiment in Germany, the German Postal Service tried something similar and they just recently announced that it will not order any more of these trucks because particularly in winter, the drivers um, said, yeah, okay, I have the option of either have comfortable temperature uh, in the driver cabin <laughs> or I make it home. Uh, and, and this is not, this doesn't seem to work well over here. Um, they will still use them. They also had uh, battery fire problems. Uh, I don't know if that's uh, a Rivian problem as well. We'll see. They'll order 100,000 electric vehicles for delivery. Uh, And the general idea here is electrification of transport, right? Because solar and wind are only able to produce electricity, not some liquid fuel, uh, or at least not directly. You have to somehow, uh, if you want to use them, you have to somehow do this with electric vehicles. Uh, And this opens a whole can of worms. Of course, you can imagine uh, all of these uh, uh, delivery trucks at the same time need to be ready for delivery in the morning, right? So they all need to charge overnight. And this changes the consumption uh, sort of uh, pattern in the power grid. And then you will have, uh, and you know, solar doesn't work overnight. And then you have to charge overnight with only wind probably. And so th- this... It, there's a gold conflict between using solar and wind and charging all your electric vehicles at the same time. So there's a scalability problem as well. And then there's a uh, 
by Jeff Bezos personally, the, he has initiated this Earth Fund of, of 10 billion. I, I, I don't know exactly what's in there, but I imagine it's it's also something like developing new technologies. Yeah, well, I, I so when that was announced, the one thing that was conspicuously in there was supporting climate activism. And this is so upsetting to me because you just think about, so you're spending $10 billion. You think about $10 billion, that's that's basically resources. And so with $10 billion, you can use those resources to create more resources, or you could use those resources to destroy things. And when you're giving climate activists money, what are they doing? Are they finding lower cost, reliable ways of producing energy? No, they are not. What they're doing is they're making fossil fuels and nuclear more expensive or even impossible to use. So what they can really do is they can just raise the price of energy. And what does it mean to raise the price of energy? It means to raise the price of everything because energy is powering the machines that are used to produce uh, everything, including all the machines themselves. So it's investing $10 billion substantially in destruction. And that's so sad because if you think about what, is, what does it mean if you, you, know, you invested that, usually Amazon is investing resources to come up with something amazingly creative. And so I regard this as, now this is something that's fundamentally destructive. And the more it's promoting this idea of renewables, anti-nuclear, anti-fossil fuel, it's, uh, it's even worse. Now I saw in our notes, you know, you, you, you showed, you know, I think you had, you have something to say about Amazon's policy because on their website, because I thought their response to this was the best out of the three companies. Yeah, so uh, in particular, uh, in response to this Greenpeace report, which accused uh, Amazon as the biggest cloud service provider uh, to aid the fossil fuel industry, in particular oil and gas, to create essentially more CO2 emissions. And they are saying, uh, yeah, but like all energy industries should have access to our services to you know, optimize their, their, what they are doing and be more efficient. So I think there's a there's a defect in that argument, and that ultimately because Amazon aligns with the green ideal of uh, no CO two emissions and minimal impact, uh, yeah, making things more efficient will actually do more impact, and in particular if you are helping the fossil fuel industry. But I, what I like is that they stand up to these bullies, as I would call them that try to micromanage their uh, operations and tell them which client they can accept and which they cannot. Yeah, so they, they talk about on their website, you know, the energy industry should have access to the same technologies as other industries. We will continue to provide cloud services to companies in the energy industry to make their legacy businesses less carbon intensive and help them accelerate development of renewable energy businesses. We support sustainability programs for our own business and work with partners to reduce their demand for carbon fuel sources. So this is uh, the the there's this point that you can make, but I don't think it's it makes sense to focus on it, which is that they say we're going to make the legacy businesses. That's a that's a interesting term for the largest, but you know the dominant energy uh, source in the world, and still you know over the past several years, still the fastest growing in absolute terms. Uh, but they're talking about making it less carbon intensive, and that that's true if you talk about if you make something more efficient then that's going to involve less energy going into it. And so, yes, if you help make oil and gas production more efficient, the production of that oil and gas will emit less CO2. 
And over time, the consumption will emit less CO2 as you get better engines and whatnot. But it's a pretty marginal thing. And unfortunately, what we have in the whole discussion is the really the only goal being considered is eliminate CO2 emissions. And so by the standard of that goal, these efficiency things aren't going to help that goal substantively. And what they do is they keep people using fossil fuel energy in the future. And that's where I think Greenpeace is right, but by their totally corrupt setup, which is that our only goal should be to eliminate CO2 emissions, no matter how much more expensive that makes energy and how much, no matter how much that harms the quality of life of uh, billions of people. So we've gone through the high-level fallacies, and then we've gone through the three companies. I've talked a little bit about why I'm so adamant about exposing this. What's Do you have any additional thoughts on just what you think is destructive about these companies, for lack of a better term, lying about their energy usage? Yeah, so in, in general, the problem is a dishonesty because fundamentally these companies claim or make big promises that they have this, uh, you know, high-tech solution to the problem. And essentially, we can just continue to have the same lifestyle and the same wealth level with better technology. And this is credible when they say it, because they have definitely made our lives much easier and much better in so many ways. Um, But the problem is they are not actually doing anything like this. They, are, they do not have a new solution uh, to make actually solar and wind work reliably. They have no solution for that. They're just exporting the problem to the grid or to somewhere else or to some accounting gimmick. And they are not actually doing what they promise, but they pretend that it's possible. And so they are creating pressure to everyone, the general public and, and other industries to do the same and uh, pretend that this goal is actually achievable when it's not. And so going further on that is I don't, and this is my personal opinion, of course, but I don't actually think the um, like high level uh, chief officers and their, the people writing these reports for them actually do believe that climate change will be such a catastrophe. Because if they would, they, they would be really miserable people because they are essentially saying we're working on this problem when they are not. So they are, they are, putting in their sustainability reports right on top, like, oh, this is a this is a humanity-threatening problem. We need to go, you know, full stop on, on the uh, CO2 emissions immediately. We, we need to tackle this now or there will be wild catastrophe. And then they are uh, giving out these sort of fake solutions. Uh, they don't know how to make solar and wind work, but they pretend this this will be easy. And so this, this would be totally uh, malicious. Um, if they really believed in this climate catastrophe. And, and I don't think all these people are like really this, this kind of monster that will, will they want to run us into this trap. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I don't have personal relationships with any of the, the CEOs yeah. of these companies. And if I did, I wouldn't comment on it. But I've just having talked to a lot of people about these issues, you might imagine that uh, just ha- having met a lot of people in all kinds of different areas, I mean, everybody that I meet who talks publicly about concern for climate, I mean, almost all of them, leaving aside the hardcore activists who wouldn't admit anything to me, but everyone admits that, yeah, it's not actually uh, this catastrophe type thing. And, you know, when they're talking to me, they'll push on 
oh, well, yeah, but isn't it a problem? Shouldn't we do something? But but they very quickly have to retreat to, isn't it a problem? Isn't there some issue? But none of this doomsday type rhetoric. I mean, I've, I've met, I can't even remember anyone I've talked to behind the scenes who really thinks of it as doomsday. And they don't act like it's it's doomsday. And that but that's good in a certain sense, but it's not good because it's, again, they're adopting the rhetoric of the green movement. They're adopting the rhetoric both with regard to saying that the side effects of fossil fuel use are catastrophic, and then they're they're adopting it with regard to saying that, that any substitutes or replacements must be renewable. And that, I think, is just completely uh, corrupt. As I said, I would, I would it would almost be a good thing if one of these companies committed to nuclear. But and just as I talk about how I don't take anyone seriously on CO two, if they're not pro nuclear, I don't take any of these companies uh, seriously on this issue. I mean, it's just such a status thing. And sure, there there are some smart, innovative people trying to do different things, but it's I think overwhelmingly. A net harm. So I returned to my original idea that these companies are doing a good thing by helping the real energy industry, including oil and gas, become more efficient, but they're doing a very bad thing by lying about their energy usage and claiming that they are either 100% renewable or on their way to 100% renewable, promoting that ideal of 100% renewable, which is impossible and improper uh, in the sense of excluding nuclear. Uh, that you know, that is just incredibly, uh, incredibly destructive. And it's really sad to see, and it's really disappointing to see. And it would be you know, amazing if one of these companies retracted it and said, hey, look, like we're interested in, I mean, a, ma- a way you could imagine them tackling it is to say, hey, look, we have concerns about rising CO2 levels. Uh, you know, the world is getting a lot better. Energy use has made a lot of that possible. We're concerned about rising CO2 levels. We realize the only way to deal with that uh, in a substantive way is to find low cost, scalable ways of producing low carbon or no carbon energy. And so we're helping invest in innovation or we're helping to decriminalize nuclear or we're helping to do something that actually solves the problem as we see it. Not we're going to pretend that these renewable solutions don't work, that these renew- that, that they do work. We're going to advocate in effect, these 100% renewable policies, and we're going to lie about what we're doing. There's just no excuse for that. And if anyone for any of these companies wants to have a private conversation, email me, alex at alexepstein.com, and I'm more than happy to have it. Uh, Stefan, before we wrap up on this topic, any final thoughts? Well, I just want to add to your point, uh, you know, the people working at these companies are, are pretty smart. So People, if if you don't, if you want to get out of this hostage hostage situation, you know, contact us. It's it's really it's really sad to see people who do so much good uh, fall into this evil trap. Uh, agreed. Okay. Well, Stefan, since I have you here, I've promised listeners I'm going to do some uh, questions from our accelerators. So for people who don't know, uh, accelerators are people who support our research and development efforts and our promotional efforts at the Center for. Uh, industrial progress, including things like being able to have uh, great research from people like uh, Stefan and accelerators who give $250, they get to ask a question that I answer on the show. But since I have Stefan here, I will have him, uh, I'm going to have him answer first, and then I'll probably give a longer answer. But Stefan, I don't know if you saw this question, I sent it to you in advance, but 
even if you didn't see it, I'm sure you'll have an interesting take. So here's here's the question from Dennis. And this relates very, I'm deliberately choosing this question because it relates very closely to what we've been talking about today. So here's the question. If the increasing consumption of and demand for fossil fuels can be directly related to increasing global population, why does the climate doomsdayer soothsayer movement not place an equal amount of emphasis upon controlling population growth as it does upon terminating the use of fossil fuels? So basically, if you think the world's going to end from rising CO2 levels, why aren't you focused on on lowering population, given that's really the only way uh, to do it, given the current technological uh, landscape. So Stefan, what's your view of that? Well, I, I think some parts of that movement do. So you've reviewed Planet of the Humans, which had a theme like, uh, you know, population control is really important. Uh, so we've seen on Twitter, like uh, all kinds of people, including like climate researchers from prestigious places uh, have talked about, you know, this is climate change is only one problem. And we're really like uh, on this path of uh, resource depletion and over carrying capacity and so on. So I think there's an element of this in this movement. Some might not emphasize this because this wouldn't go over well. So it might be a strategic like marketing move, if you want to call it that, to not uh, put the emphasis on this because a lot of people will not uh, be positive about this. And we talked about the tech companies in this power. Hour. Obviously, like the tech companies stand for big solutions. And this is a positive message. And this will go over much better than saying, oh, yeah, like Paul Ehrlich, I think, said, yeah, the Earth can only support long term less than a billion humans. So seven billion humans have to die, essentially. Uh, this, this doesn't really work well. And if you're, a, if you're an activist in this kind of movement, even if you believe that, I don't, I don't think it, uh, they see it as making sense to emphasize this as much. But I can see also a lot of people, I think, will be happy if solar and wind actually make energy more expensive. So just I'm a German. I know the German government plans to significantly decrease primary energy use until 2050. And part of that is, yeah, let's make energy more expensive and make it really hurt people to use a lot of energy. This is part of the strategy. This is actually anti-human policy and anti-technology policy. And uh, I think implicitly it's there. It's just a lot of people will not mention it for strategic reasons. Or many of the just the followers, uh, you know, for lack of a better word, foot soldiers that are just uh, following this movement, they will probably not think about it in these terms. All right. Well, you, you hit on a bunch of uh, what I was, was thinking of. So... I mean, so much of this comes down to the issue of standard. So what standard are you using to evaluate that there's a doomsday? So he calls it the climate doomsday soothsayer movement. So are you thinking of it as it's doomsday for humans, as in this will kill a lot of humans? Or are you thinking of it as doomsday for the climate and the earth over and above humans? And Because if you think of it as for humans— then you wouldn't think of it as we have to reduce population. Your fear would be that it would reduce population in the sense of actually killing people. 
like well, let's be clear on what we mean by population reduction. I mean, that means in any near term, that means killing a whole bunch of people. So your whole focus would be how do we your primary focus would be how do we prevent as many people as possible from dying or how do we empower as many people as possible to protect themselves uh, from the danger? But as soon as you start talking about the solution involves getting rid of a bunch of people, that means you're not on the pro-human standard. Now, you could imagine that, uh, I mean, I guess the most benevolent interpretation is no, they really do care about humans. They care about human flourishing. But if we live in an alternate universe where there's this cap and once you go above a billion people, then things get worse uh, for everyone. Like if that was the world that existed, uh, I guess, yeah, you'd have to think about, I mean, you. I mean, everything would change. Human beings wouldn't be productive. We wouldn't have the same kinds of reasoning minds. I mean, that would just be a totally different species. And who knows if that species would e- it would even be proper for us to be free in the first place if we can't actually create a value. So, the I'm trying to come up with well, what what is kind of a benevolent interpretation of this, but it's all based on a um, like ultimately, if you're on a human standard, you pretty and you really think about it, you quickly see that there's not this problem of of overpopulation that human beings create value and even when we have destructive impacts we can uh we can minimize those impacts we can protect ourselves from them so we could do all sorts of things to master climate you know we've talked about this many times but make it cool when it's hot and make it warm when it's freezing and protect ourselves from hurricanes and all you know desalinate water uh, if there's drought like the point, it's just it's hard to answer this question getting away from there's not a, a population problem and in general more people uh, are helpful for these things so the like the doomsday really i'm stressing this because really the doomsday is not it really can't be about doomsday for humans it's about doomsday for everything else but humans but it's judged as it's basically judged as because the earth the earth is it's a doomsday because it's changed by humans. Because what does it even mean that it's doomsday? Like, does it really mean every species is going to die, that the whole earth is going to be a fireball or something? Nobody says that. So it just means that the conditions will change and certain species will be better off and certain species will be worse off. And even if you know more species were destroyed uh, than existed before, or, you know, if you had a like a mass extinction, which I don't think there's any real evidence of, like new species would emerge. So what does it even mean that the earth is destroyed? It just means there's just a different balance of living organisms. So again, the only, the whole view of this as doomsday, I think is just based on the view that human impact is bad. And so a lot of human impact has to be bad, even if it's really good uh, for humans. So that's just the one perspective that I, I think that it's ultimately it's ultimately just it's not actually it's when they say doomsday, it's not about this is a bad thing for humans. That's the rationalization, but it means humans are having a lot of impact and and that is um, that is a bad thing. Now, in terms of, you know, if you believe that, if you have this perspective that human impact is bad, then, of course, the number one thing you have to do is 
get rid of humans. And so by their own ultimate standards, often unstated standards, yeah, it's not just place an equal amount of emphasis upon controlling population growth. It, that needs to be the primary uh, emphasis or, or of shrinking population would be the primary emphasis. Because you think about it, if you terminate the use of fossil fuels, well, but then what if we can use nuclear sooner than it appears that we can? Well, then that's not going to solve the problem. They're say, they'll say it's doomsday because we're having all these different kinds of effects on the earth and we're changing you know, different kinds of things with species and we're going to maybe end up colonizing space. You know, what, Whatever is happening, as long as we're having a lot of impact, the whole anti-impact movement is going to find it to be um, very, very destructive. So let's see if I have anything else else to say about this. I mean, the, the, the most direct answer to your question, uh, which I think Stefan gave in part of his answer, is just that the reason they don't do this. So even though the logic of their position is that their primary focus should be on reducing population, they barely focus on it uh, at all. And they pretend that their goals are achievable with no killing of people uh, because that's the way to sell it. And that's, I mean, that's pretty straightforward. If you if you have a vision where most people don't exist and most people can't have kids and the people who do exist have far fewer opportunities, people are not going to buy that vision. But if you tell them, hey, pursuing those things is unfortunately going to be self-destructive, so we have to do a lot less, or, you know, that that starts to be a little hard. But if you say, no, we just need to do these different things. We just need to use solar panels and wind turbines, and then it'll be exactly the same, uh, but without these problems. But then the leaders of the movement don't believe that, and and that's what you're seeing with Planet of the Humans. They're saying, basically, it's not true. It's not true that solar and wind can do everything that fossil fuels can without these consequences, but they're really saying even if they could, it would still be bad because we'd still be having this massive impact on the planet. We'd still be a planet of the humans with nuclear you know, even all the issues with nuclear are solved and it's cheaper than anything for every purpose, it would still be that we're having a big impact. So the, uh, I think it's good to expose that ultimately the whole anti-impact movement means anti-humans. I mean, to be anti-human impact is to be anti-human and, and to show that the leaders are pretty straightforward about we need fewer humans. That is a very uh, valuable kind of thing. But I think the main reason to do that is to remove the rationalization that it's a pro-human movement and then get the pro-human people on the pro-human side, which means being for uh, energy freedom, for fossil fuels, uh, for nuclear. So that's a, a bunch of different elements. I just wanted to go a little bit in terms of uh, how I think the issue of the standard uh, shapes this. But the bottom line is, or, I mean, again, the most direct thing is it's not a palatable thing to say we are going to uh, we are going to get rid of you. Um, but it is and that's partially why it's a really good thing for those of us on the pro-human side to make the issue really clear so that it's clear, oh no wait, these proposals for 100% renewable, that's really about getting rid of people and getting rid of the quality of life that we have and certainly depriving billions of people who don't have it of any opportunity whatsoever for uh, having it. Okay, that is the show for this week. Uh, Stefan, thanks for coming on. Thank you for having me. And just to wrap up, as usual, if you have any questions, comments, love mail, or hate mail, you can email me at alex at alexepstein.com. 
you can, let's see, what different ways to subscribe. You can subscribe to this podcast just about anywhere. You can also go to youtube.com slash improve the planet to subscribe to our YouTube channel. And most important thing, if you are uh, interested in being on our weekly mailing list, a new uh, mailing every Wednesday with the latest that we're up to, go to industrialprogress.com and sign up for the newsletter. Uh, also, as I mentioned before, I don't think I gave the web address. If you're interested in supporting our work, particularly uh, our research and development efforts and our promotional efforts in this uh, you know, pandemic time in particular, you can go to industrialprogress.com slash accelerate and you can help us out. And there are a whole bunch of really cool rewards that you can get. All right. That is it for this week. Hope everyone enjoyed it. Um, we'll be back next week with another great topic. Not sure what it is. Until then, I'm Alex Epstein. This has been Power Hour. Power Hour. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of energy. Power Hour. The antidote to shallow thinking about energy issues.